Welcome to the Things Learned Podcast. My name is Steve, and these are some notable things that I learned during the 37th and 38th weeks of 2011. September 12th. How to make a sweet navbar thing similar to Google's. That's right, I out-googled Google. This thing learned is pretty funny because it plays up something that is truly mediocre in every sense of the word. What I was referring to here was creating a hovering navigation strip at the top of my websites that visually mimicked Google's then-new navbar containing the core modules of the site, allowing for fast global navigation. Additionally, if you were currently viewing a page that matched one of the links in the navigation bar, a little red line would display above that text, denoting your current position. In the CSS code, I gave it the name of capstone bar, mostly because I had no idea what else to call it, and it felt like an appropriate name to me. A lot of the magic resides in the CSS file, which dictates the layout, while the HTML file merely has a bunch of boring nested div tags with corresponding names that take visual orders from the stylesheet file. The floor to web design isn't very high, and even you can play around with the code and get this to work. I'll include a link in the show notes to a cool example that shows just how easy it is to make one of these, and I encourage you to give it a try at some point. September 13th, caveat emptor means let the buyer beware. Thank my marketing class for this one. Caveat emptor is a classic Latin phrase warning a customer against buying something for ominous reasons. The phrase is actually shorter, part of a longer passage, translating to let a purchaser beware for he ought not to be ignorant of the nature of the property which he is buying from another party. My marketing professor included this as part of a greater theme, centering around the customer decision process. The general idea was, need recognition leads to searching for alternatives, which leads to evaluation of alternatives, which leads to purchase, which leads to post-purchase evaluation. In the same lecture, the United States Sherman Antitrust Act was discussed, and how it opened the floodgates for product regulation, protecting small companies from big ones, protecting consumers from unfair business practices, and to protect the interest of societies as a whole. Over the years, various U.S. presidential administrations would enforce or relax some of these rules, depending on who it was. Over in Europe, the EU would dictate the standards for participating countries. From here, we then trailed off into other topics, such as ethics concerns, business scandals, internet marketing, the Canned Spam Act, and others. As a totally off-the-cuff example, one needs to utilize a whole lot of caveat emptor when buying things on Amazon. Unfortunately, there seems to be a swath of fake or paid reviews, as well as vendors that seem to steal or counterfeit other products, while occasionally deleting and recreating themselves as another generic name later on. 
I've been burned at least a few times by failing to resist the impulse buy option, only to later return the product or buy something else. It would be nice if sites could moderate these issues a little better than they presently are, but that's a debate for another time. September 15th, the origin of the term x86. It is the year 1979, and a little semiconductor chip company known as Intel is about to release its 8086 microprocessor for use in those newfangled things called computers and terminals as well. But you get the point. Not Intel's first microprocessor, but technically its fourth one, the 8086 and its variant, the 8088, were the ones that ended up really taking off. It's not as if the previous iterations were unsuccessful or insignificant. In 1974, the 8080 processor made headlines by powering the first personal computer, the Altair, that of which inspired the likes of Bill Gates, Steve Wozniak, and countless others. The 8086, however, was the next generation, and as Intel puts it, quote, a pivotal sale to IBM's new personal computer division made the 88 the brains of IBM's new hit product, the IBM PC. The 8088 success propelled Intel into the ranks of the Fortune 500, and Fortune magazine named the company one of the business triumphs of the 70s. The original 8086 was the first 16-bit processor and the first processor capable of modern personal computing. The success of this processor led to part of its namesake sticking around for more than 30 years afterwards, coining the term x86 for Intel-based processors, denoting not only lineage and compatibility, but commemorating the pivotal moment in computing history. I have never had the honor of being able to necessarily use a computer with the chip, but I still do understand its significance, and obviously it powers most of the modern PC world to this day. That being said, there are plenty of challengers on the horizon, especially today, with AMD and ARM being formidable opponents in the space, providing processing and energy efficiencies that seem to be eclipsing Intel's current offerings. The term x86 has a second meaning, however, and this one becomes a bit more complicated. Often, the term x86 in software can mean 32-bit-based Intel processors, while newer 64-bit-based ones are coined with the term x64 instead. This gets a bit confusing, as the uninformed layperson might consider x86 to be superior on numeric value alone, but unfortunately, it's not that cut and dry. To call it x32 wouldn't make any sense either, as you are then stripping out the historical definition by removing the 86 and prefixing 32 with an x, which wouldn't make any sense. So in closing, on this day, I figured out why x86 means what it means, along with its history and current dual meaning. September 16th. Minecraft 1.8 stuff. It's been a little while since we last talked about Minecraft. You know what also threw me for a loop? 
there are technically two version 1.8s of Minecraft. There's the one I'm going to focus on here, and then there's the other one that would be released in 2014, after the game came out of its beta development phase. In fact, beta 1.8 would be the final release before they reset to version 1.0.0 and considered the game as ready for, quote, release on November 18th, 2011. I am sort of puzzled as to why Mojang reset their version numbering scheme, because it causes strange version number dualities like this, and when researching information on old versions, such as this one, I initially landed on the wrong pages. I just thought that was something to highlight. Anyways, so the beta 1.8 release of Minecraft Java Edition, specifically, was a huge step forward and what some might consider a turning point in the game's core structure. Dubbed the Adventure Update, the amount of changes that were incorporated are pretty impressive. I remember that folks online at the time sort of criticized Minecraft for not necessarily having much of a true game portion of the game, despite being an open-world survival and building simulator. Personally, I think that judgment call will always be a subjective one, but this update surely helped quell those gripes. The adventure update added a lot of brand new structures, enemies, items, and gameplay mechanics. One such feature that I wasn't so keen on at first was the concept of hunger, and that player health now revolved around the secondary system where you had to fill a hunger meter to not only regenerate health, but prevent yourself from dying of starvation. This meant one had to refine how they played the game and allocate inventory for food to handle this new burden. It took me a long time to come around to this, and even today I'm sort of 50-50 on it, but it's not too much of a problem and adds a bit of risk to the game portion of the game. Other notable additions included the incorporation of fortresses, that would be randomly placed in a world, known as Strongholds. There were a finite number of them per world file, and you really had to work to find them. I enjoyed this concept, as it gave more of an incentive to move out of your comfort zone and go exploring through the randomly generated worlds in hopes of finding these strongholds, and then constructing a portal that would take you to a brand new environment that even had some semblance of a final boss. If one got this far and killed the Ender Dragon, they would get a credit screen, and then you could say you finished the game. To this day, I've never gotten that far, and while I occasionally try to do that, I still don't really find that a major motivator. Minecraft, to me, has always been more of a relaxing game, where you just sort of wander around doing whatever you feel is appealing to you at that very moment. Beta version 1.8 will always hold a soft spot in my heart for being sort of the final major version of the game that we would play in college as a friends group, especially with the idea we could group up and just go running in some direction in hopes of finding a stronghold. I think it was also right on the edge of our tolerance for new features in the game, and before the game and developer Mo Yang started going through some changes and twists and turns that well, got a little weird at times, to say the very least. It felt like a bittersweet end of an era, for multiple reasons. September 18th, 
Fire alarms have PA systems built into them, usually. Let's now talk about something completely different. So yeah, on this day I learned the sensible yet not always known fact that fire alarms can double as PA announcement systems. To quote Gene Rowe of Affiliated Customer Service, the trend in providing today's building services, such as fire alarm and overhead paging, is to install them on a common system. Not only does it simplify interaction with these systems since the end user uses one control unit, but it saves money by not having to install and maintain two separate voice systems. Whether or not you can actually use your fire alarm system as a paging system as well initially depends on the fire alarm equipment capacity and capability, end quote. Now that just makes sense, right? Most of these alarms already have speakers built in to broadcast not only the loud and alarming alarms, but you also occasionally get pre-recorded vocal instructions such as, a fire has been detected in the building, please immediately exit and avoid elevators. Pretty neat in my opinion, and useful for big apartment buildings or businesses. So the better question is, why did I learn this particular thing? And you wouldn't be faulted for being curious. At about 2.30 a.m. on this day, the fire alarm system went off in the on-campus apartment we were living in. Of course, that's incredibly startling. The fire alarms were in each bedroom, so not only do you have a pretty loud tone with flashing strobing lights going off randomly in the middle of an otherwise quiet night, but you also need to wake up fast and get just presentable enough to hightail it out of the building. On a college campus, that can lead to rather interesting results, as you can probably imagine. Someone apparently discharged a fire extinguisher, likely setting off the alarm. We got a lot of nasty emails about this from the assistant housing director on September 19th and the 22nd, dovetailing into statements of disappointment regarding the behavior of certain students living in the complex stating this was the second time in 16 days that something like this occurred. Cue the standard fare, this costs us and you time and money, nasty grams that followed. So while our room and board bills might have gone up a bit, I at least got some education and knowledge out of the matter regarding fire alarm PA systems. September 21st, SQL Server on Mac. This week I was tasked with an assignment in my Managing Information Systems Across the Enterprise course, in which we had to install MySQL Workbench and MySQL Server on our computers. Then we had to review a case study and produce a list of entities and attributes we identify in the scenario, as well as construct an Entity Relationship Diagram, also known as an ERD, using MySQL Workbench. I think this highlights some interesting conventions of the time. It's quite a messy feat to ask regular undergraduate college students to construct an entire local database environment on their personal systems. The setup is messy, may lead to security concerns, and takes up a lot of time and resources to run. In today's iteration of such a class, I'd imagine this software would instead be either configured in a containerized fashion or hosted remotely in a virtual server environment of some kind. 
Out of the five pages of the assignment guidelines, three and a half of them were dedicated to simply installing MySQL, that of which we only used a sparing amount of times. I also distinctly remember that this class was geared towards students in the business program as opposed to the IT and CS programs, which further led to confused students drowning in a subject matter that they often might not have fully signed up for. Anyways, core complaints aside, the actual assignment is modestly simple. And honestly, you don't even really need the software to produce an ERD like this to begin with. So unless it was either busy work or intent to get us oriented with the application suite, I'm sort of now questioning the entire foundation of the assignment. The class as a whole was informative, but I think since then I've taken other versions of the same curriculum, which did a much better job at both teaching the content and facilitating the hands-on assignments. Points for trying, though. September 23rd, where Nova Scotia is. Well, this is embarrassing, to me at least. So yeah, Nova Scotia. Latin for New Scotland. It's just northeast of the state of Maine and Kitty Corner to mainland Canada. In the late 1400s, John Cabot was estimated to be among the first Europeans to land in Nova Scotia. But obviously, they wouldn't be the first to settle there. Like the land that became the United States, native groups and tribes lived there for millennia. Fast forward to the very early 1600s, and French colonists arrived on the scene, and then various territorial ownership changes ensued over the next few centuries. Certain effects of the American Revolution would echo around this region in various ways, as the regions sometimes overlapped in terms of French and English jurisdiction. Wars happened, treaties happened, and more divisions and provinces would be defined. One fun fact is that in 1813, the Nova Scotia ship, the HMS Shannon, captured the USS Chesapeake, which inspired the US naval quote, don't give up the ship. Anyways, I could go on and on about the history, but I don't want to parrot someone else's work all too much. Check out the Nova Scotia channel on YouTube for far more history and detail of the province. I don't exactly recall why I learned this today, but I guess I certainly had some geographic knowledge hammered in. September 24th, Relearned Beirut. One of the staples of drunken college sports, Beirut, or beer pong, actually has some legitimate rules and regulations if you want to take it seriously. 26 plastic regulation solo cups are generally recommended, and you'll want to head down to the store to pick up some cheap light beer to fill them. You'll also, of course, need a table, hard to find, I know, ping pong balls, as well as two to six players, although this capacity is likely debatable. Each side of the table has a triangular arrangement of 10 cups, just like bowling pins. You attempt to toss the ping pong ball overhand into any one of the cups, and if it lands in one, a member of the opposite team must drink from that cup. As cups are taken out of play, the triangular arrangement is rebuilt based on the remaining number of cups, based on multiples of threes. Repeat until the first team is eliminated. That's about it. I guess I relearned this at a party or something. 
Back in February of this year, 2011, I was part of the film crew for a TV series known as Boston Root, where professional beer pong players in New England duked it out for television supremacy. I don't think it ever got picked up by any major network, despite being a satellite tournament of the World Series of Beer Pong in partnership with NBC Universal Sports and the greatest bar, Boston. But hey, I can guarantee that I stood at the entrance and ensured that folks had corporate logos covered up by black gaffer's tape. So I did my part. That's all there is to say about the most notable things I learned during these two weeks. I wrote down a few other notes about some fun events and happenings that also occurred during or in between these days. I put out a want ad for my successor as the TV station server manager, and it marked the beginning of an end of an era for me. I had to look beyond college and leave behind comfortable norms that I had established over these past few school years. Over the next few weeks and months, I would interview many promising candidates, many of which were fantastic computer science students that were incredibly eager to get their hands dirty with all kinds of computer and network management opportunities that this job performed. I eventually narrowed down the candidate pool and would pick my successor, training them up, and gradually taking my hands off the wheel, hoping that I did an adequate job at priming the next generation. Okay, that sounds a bit overdramatic, and in all honesty, the TV station didn't have long for this world after I left, as it only lasted about another year in the same form, before being absorbed into another group in the university, and then gradually changed and dissolved, sadly. I guess that's what happens in life. Not everything stays the same forever, so cherish what you have today. That's my little random piece of advice, I guess, that I can offer from this series of events. Back on the subject of more fun start-of-the-school-year happenings, September 13th was what was known as U-Day at the school, which was a big outdoor palooza of student orgs and clubs, offering swag, food, and sign-ups for almost everything you could think of. I always liked this day, despite it being a lot of work if you were involved in running a table. It gave off the fresh fall social college atmosphere that I very much enjoyed. We got to make all these fun little pins and buttons we'd give out to folks, and we were able to get some good footage of the event, which both served as a demonstration of live filming and as a film festival piece later on. On September 18th, I bought a USB hub from a site known as onesaleaday.com. These kinds of dubious websites were new and popular around this time, and I'll admit, a lot of us were sort of enamored with it thinking we could get fun gadgets for cheap, with the stress of FOMO driving our purchase motivations. I remember the USB hub being only somewhat adequate, as it was cheaply made, didn't provide enough power and bandwidth to utilize every port simultaneously, and it wasn't even USB 3, a bad prospect for future-proofing. One sale a day is now known as One Sale, and is apparently still around, I guess they existed since 2007, but I'm unsure how prominent they actually were back then. Presently, it looks like they pivoted to just offering a bunch of random products at various prices, almost akin to an Amazon Lightning deal. In the old days, I remember they offered far fewer products, usually highlighting a certain one as the main deal, 
with a few others in tow underneath. Thumbing through Wayback Machine archives of this site seemed to line up with that memory. On September 21st, I got an email from Evernote with the headline, Learn Something New This Fall with Evernote. I figured since this is a podcast about learning things, I'd bring this up as it feels right. In these times, Evernote was a great application before Microsoft OneNote eclipsed them. Evernote offered inter-device synchronization of notes, which made it really easy to bop between desktops, laptops, and tablets without having to worry about synchronizing files. It was sort of like Dropbox, but more specialized for ephemeral documents. Evernote got me through college in the later years, and while I don't use them anymore, I appreciate them paving the way for better methods of digital note-taking. They definitely tried a lot of cool things, such as the Skitch app, which was meant to be more of a visual annotation platform, taking advantage of the still-new iPad, among other experiments. That's all. I didn't really have much else to say about this, but figured it was worth noting. That's it for this episode. Thanks for coming along for another chunk of Days of Things Learned. If this is your first time listening in, welcome to the show, and I hope you stick around. If you're just back for another episode, thanks for continuing to listen. It means a lot to me. If you like the show, I'm super pumped that you did, and I hope you follow the podcast for past and future episodes. If you would be so kind as to give the show a rating on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or wherever rates podcasts, I'd appreciate it. I'd also like if you could recommend this show to anyone you think would enjoy it. Until next time, have a great week, and I'll talk to you then.